There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Today, I want to talk about questions. Now, I happen to believe that to lead, ultimately, is about learning to ask the right question at the right time. Asking questions is ultimately how you get your team to think. It's at the heart of how you delegate. It's really the core of coaching, and it's an incredibly powerful way to motivate. So asking questions is what creates breakthroughs. It's the heart and soul of innovation, and I'm convinced that you can't lead well without being able to ask good questions. If you're an expert, you tend to ask questions about the facts, the details, the numbers from your base of knowledge. But the skill to move out of the comfort zone is to learn to ask questions outside your base of expertise. Yet I find we don't spend nearly enough time thinking about what questions, what types of questions, on what occasion, with what timing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So I am delighted to welcome my guest today is Frank Sesno. Frank is currently the director of George Washington University School of Medicine, Media, and Public Affairs, where he leads a faculty of over two dozen world-class researchers and teachers in journalism. But Frank is an internationally recognized journalist with more than 30 years experience reporting from around the world. He joined CNN in 1984 and was seven years White House correspondent and then went on to serve as the Washington bureau chief and senior vice president for a number of years. He also hosted a late edition with Frank Sesno, which was CNN's flagship weekend interview program. He's interviewed five presidents, a bunch of Nobel Prize winners, renowned economists, celebrities, CEOs, and a whole host of characters. So if anyone knows how to ask questions, it's Frank. And more importantly, he has a lovely book called Ask More. So Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm thrilled. I think this is going to be exciting because I think one of the things people struggle with, I, you know, I will talk to people about delegating and inspiring and motivating all those good things. And we talk about the power of questions and then they turn to me and say, what questions? What should I ask? So I'm excited to talk about what questions. So before I go that, go there, you wrote this fabulous book, Ask More. And just why'd you write it? What was that about? (laughs) Oh, I wrote it for a lot of reasons, some of which you've already talked about, um, because I've covered leaders and I've covered White Houses. I've both had to ask questions, and I've watched how leaders lead using questions, listening to them, listening to answers. Are they able to follow up? You know, we talk about the questions, but the flip side of that coin, and a coin's only good if it has two sides, right, is the listening part. And so good leaders are great questioners and great listeners, because that's how they detect creativity, opportunity, peril, you name it. Um, So I wrote the book because I found that um, some leaders I watched, reported on, worked for, worked with, were great questioners, and then I noticed others who were terrible at it. And I noticed purely anecdotally that the ones I felt who succeeded and tapped into the creativity around them were the ones who inquired and learned about other people, but also through that inquiring, conveyed authority and agency to those other people because, gosh, you're asking me what I think about something. Gosh, you're asking me 
for my um, ideas. You're asking me as if you actually trust me and think I know something. So I'm going to work even harder for you. <laughs> uh, I wrote it because I noticed with young people and all the technology that it was easier to just blast a declarative sentence or sentence fragment. Uh, I noticed more exclamation points than question marks in our political discourse. Uh, so I wrote it for a lot of reasons. And I fundamentally wrote it because I realized that whether it's in journalism school or elementary school, high school or college, we have debate teams, we teach public speaking, but no one actually teaches you what and how to ask or how to listen. So I wrote the book. Great. Now, I'm prepared to talk with you today about how to ask questions, but I'm intrigued by this listening. And I will echo with you all of my favorite CEOs, all the ones that I've worked with, every last one of them says one of their pieces of advice is ask a bunch of questions. And they always say ask dumb questions. So sometimes those dumb questions are not just that dumb. Okay. So um, I, well, let me follow up a bit on this listening component. Um what's in the essence of listening? What is it that somebody, I mean, I know they're listening, they're hearing. You get the sense that some people really listen and some people don't really listen. So what's the secret to listening? I think the first secret to listening is actually asking yourself, there's a question, uh, <laughs> what kind of listener am I? Uh, am I uh, attentive? Am I an interrupter? Uh, am I a gap filler? Does silence make me uncomfortable? Do I listen for data and numbers, and I really key into that, or do I listen for stories and humanity, and that's what gets my attention? Where are my weaknesses? Am I easily distracted as a listener? Uh, as I listen, to, do I comfortably make eye contact? Because eye contact and body language, those things are also part of listening. Do I listen to respond, or do I listen seeking a deeper understanding? When I'm listening, do I play off of what I hear? In other words, if I think of this in the, in the question context, right, if you take this as an interviewer, you talked about, as you inter introduced me, you talked, to me, uh, talked about being an interviewer. One of the most important ways to interview somebody is to listen intently to what they're saying so that one question flows from a previous answer. So if they leave something unaddressed, you come back and ask them again to address it. If they say something really interesting, you zero in on it. If they say something surprising, you can respond in what I call the echo question. There's an echo question, all right? So if you tell me you've done, um, you've done this radio program, podcast for, for 10 years, but every day before you go on the air, it still terrifies you. And I would say, terrifies? Mm -hmm. Just I'd echo a word mm -hmm. back. And you would say, oh, my God, yes, you have no idea how much work I put into this. I can't sleep the night before. I, you know, I break out in a cold sweat. Of course, you wouldn't say terrified. You'd say exhilarate. <laughs> so, <laughs> positive. But the point is, is to really be listening for a key emotion or mood to ask more about or a key fact or data point. You know, we, we, we made a thousand cars last week and 1,200, you know, 800 of them were, you know, had to go back for repairs. 800? Someone will almost always proceed to tell you what went wrong uh, on the line that you had to do that. So that, that, that kind of listening drives both understanding and engagement and, of course, follow-on questions. Yeah, right. I've always thought that one of the secrets, and I've said this many times on the radio show, one of the secrets is being able to synthesize what you've heard people say, to summarize it, 
to, you know, just kind of capture the jewel of it. Because I find people feel really validated when you do that. Boy, I'll say, there's nothing like quoting someone back to them. Being when you do that, you, you convey several things all at once. One, you know where they come from. Two, you um, celebrate their words. Three, you are pursuing a deeper um, inquiry, level of inquiry, to, to what they have said or done. And that is um, a very profound and fundamental expression of respect. I say that the most important thing in, in, in inquiry, in, in, in interviewing, in asking people um, whatever kinds of questions you're asking, is first and foremost to be genuine and to care. Like, you really interest me as a person. How, how, how long have you been doing this show? Where, you're, you're a doctor. Tell me about it. Where does that come from? Um, what, what are the most interesting interviews for you? You know, when I'm asking you these questions or if I'm talking to an employee who works for me, and it can start with something as simple as how was your weekend, and then they proceed to tell you that, you know, the, the roof fell in because a tree fell, fell after that big storm, you are, you are demonstrating your interest in another person, and you are conveying through those questions and that listening that you care. That is so basic, but so important and so often overlooked, especially in a workplace, especially surrounded by the technology we are today, because everybody's so rushed all the time. Right. It's... Um Profoundly simple and deeply profound at the same time to say that you convey that you care by the questions you ask and the way you listen. But boy, does that ring true for everybody I talk to in organizations. Obviously, we all want our managers and our senior leaders and our colleagues to care about us. But the best way of conveying that is the questions and the listening. All right. Fabulous. All right, Frank. I, I, if, I, if I may, I'll tell you just a very quick Please. story. So one of, the, one, of the ways, one of the reasons this book was written is I have a very good friend who got married early on in her life. Marriage didn't work out. And she then proceeded to spend literally decades looking for a, for a, a wonderful partner. And she said to me at one point when I was thinking about writing this book, she says, you know, this is just, it's just driving me crazy. Uh, you know, I'll do eHarmony or whatever. I'll go out for dates with these guys. And all they want to do is talk about themselves. They never ask me about me. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to have a more successful love life, just ask somebody about their lives. What are their interests? Where are they coming from? Again, it's, it's something so simple and so basic, but, but people are very good about, we all are, about talking about ourselves. What that questioning can do is to, to, to really direct you um, to express interest in, in someone else. I tell my students as an exercise, sit down with someone for 20 minutes, ask them a series of questions. During that time, there are two words you may not use. You know what those are, Wanda? I, I have or no me. idea. I <laughs> or me. All right. So for, for 20 minutes, force yourself to be focused exclusively, exclusively on that other person. You're not talking about you. You're not the topic. It's interesting. <laughs> I love that one. Hey, but Frank, I hate when people are trying to t- get me to talk about me and they say, well, tell me about you, Wanda. I don't even know where to begin to answer that question. So do you have a better starting point? Well, it depends on the, of course, you know, of course I do. <laughs> but it depends on, 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 on what your 
where you are, uh, what the situation is. The most important thing really in about 90% of these situations, whether in the workplace or in your private life or in your research or in your uh, quest for, for connection with another human being, is to know first what you want out of that exchange and secondly to have done some work, to have done a little bit of groundwork on who it is you're talking to. You don't go to a job interview and ask questions or be asked questions without understanding the firm, what the job is, what they're looking for in a candidate. You'd be completely ridiculous and un- unprepared. It happens, but that, that's not the way to do that. Similarly, when I sit down with you, if you and I are having coffee, um, presumably I know something about you or it should be my business to find out something about you before I sit down. So I'm probably not going to start by saying, tell me about yourself. I'm going to start by saying, you, you know, you've got this fascinating program you've done. For, for years where you're talking to all these people, how did that start? Okay. Uh, and, and, and so I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not asking from a blank slate. I'm asking with purpose, and I'm going to start with something that's not threatening to you, that's actually comfortable for you to talk about, um, but that reflects some both knowledge and curiosity. Okay. You said important there that it's not threatening and it's comfortable. Very important. To me. Very, very, okay. very important. So who asks questions uh, for a living but therapists? And when you go to a therapist, it's neither your intention nor the therapist's intention to create an uncomfortable environment. You're going there voluntarily. You're going there because presumably you want to talk or you want to talk something out or you want some help. When you see your doctor and your doctor asks you, how are you doing? That's not a threatening environment. Uh, a lot of this book came about because of a class I taught. And one of the assignments to the students was an oral history, and I encouraged them to do an oral history with a family member. They had to do serious research about a family member, even someone they'd lived with all their lives, because I guaranteed them they would learn something big if they took the time to do it, and they all did. It was phenomenal. But one of the reasons that so many of these interviews yielded really, truly profound and surprising bits of information one young woman was told by her mother that her, she, her mother had been raped when she was younger. She'd never known that before. Another woman was told by her dad how the family, what happened with a, with a child who had, who had died in, in, in infancy before this young woman was born, a couple of years before she was born. Another student told, was told by his father how and why he became a civil rights lawyer. I mean, really amazing stuff that these kids had never heard before. But the reason was they had set up an appointment in a sense, kind of like you do with your therapist, right? They're going to sit down. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to learn about your life and have an oral history. That expectation of asking and answering was set, and a comfortable and trustworthy environment was established. And okay. people very, very quickly opened up. It was a remarkable thing. They all had to do this on camera, so they did it as videos. It was a remarkable wow. thing to watch. I bet it was. Um, you know, lots of people say, we always say when we're coaching teams and groups that you got to create a space of safety, psychological safety for the team to get to know each other, to ask the right kind of questions, to say what we all really want out of this and so forth. And you just said then trustworthy environment. Any secrets to creating that kind of environment? Um, neutral ground, a place where someone isn't going to feel threatened. Uh, if there are associations with a certain location, you know, this is where the layoff announcements come. Maybe that's not the best mm-hmm. location to do something like this. Right. Um, a very clear message from whoever is running the conversation or the session 
that this is an open, comfortable forum and, and an invitation to do whatever is going to be done there, whether it's brainstorm or explore or vent or share ideas or problems. Um, okay. And, okay. and um, asking questions, setting, setting this up as a, a, a question and questions that don't put people on the spot in front of okay. their peers, but okay. that, that create kind of what I call jump ball questions where people are going to eagerly go for it um, and know that it's part of the game uh, and that, and that the, the rules accommodate them and protect them. Okay. I love that one. All right. So I, we keep talking about this context for quite a while. Let me turn for a moment to the kind of questions that you want, you like to ask. You have a whole list of them in the book. Just give us a few of them. You've talked about echo questions and jump ball questions already, but what other kind of questions do you, you talk about? Well, I create these categories of questions because I find that they connect to outcomes. And if I think about outcomes, it drives me in a much more purposeful way. So there are what I call diagnostic questions, figuring out what's going on here, what's wrong. It's like when you go to the doctor, or your car's got a funny noise, or you've got a leak in the roof. You've got to figure out the problem before you can do anything. Those are very fact-oriented questions. They're strategic questions. Those are looking over the horizon. You're thinking of a big move. You're thinking of a job change. In the case of my chapter, uh, I was interviewing General Colin Powell, and he's thinking of whether America's going to go to war or not. There are questions that, and issues that have a lot at stake. There's risk, upside, downside. How do you pose questions so that you get out of your own sense of biases or groupthink and can pose questions in a way that challenge yourself to actually see upsides and downsides? They're what I call creativity questions, questions that are kind of out there. I, I like to refer to them as time travel questions. Okay, it's five years from now. You've got the number one program globally. What are you doing? <laughs> So it's uh, in the future, but it connects to a present tense situation so that you can leapfrog all the, well, I don't have enough money and the staff isn't big enough and blah, blah, blah. No, you're, just close your eyes and click your heels. And you've got that. I had a, somebody I talked to who referred to those as magic wand questions, but you're really imagining. Good leaders do this. They will pose a very big question to a country or a, a community and say, you know, well, what if we go to the moon? You know, and you, 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 you prompt people to imagine. They're what I call bridge-building questions. Um, these are times when you might be talking to, trying to engage someone who's hostile, wary, suspicious, uncomfortable. Um, think hostage negotiations. The FBI does this. They just want to get that other person talking because over that time, perhaps you can establish rapport in a relationship. Empathetic questions, which are, go well beyond bridge building. This is when you go to your therapist or when you uh, are, are talking to a friend who's hurting or a colleague who has um, not succeeded or has had a terrible loss. Uh, this is when you're, you're listening for sentiment and, and feeling and, 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 and the, what Terry Gross, the famous radio interviewer, calls the essence of a person. And it's very, very much what therapists will do when they are both empathetic themselves and seeking to draw people out. Um, I love entertainment. I call them entertaining questions. I have this friend. He's this awesome guy. And he has these dinner parties. And before you go to his dinner party, he'll send everybody a question to consider before they come in. <laughs> and it's, it's not like homework or anything. There, some of them are crazy questions. And I have another friend who has a silver bowl on the, on the table. And just as dessert is coming around, she passes the silver bowl, bowl out. And the bowl has, is filled with little pieces of paper all folded over. And each one of them is a question, and you're supposed to answer it. So the one I got was, 
uh, Adele or Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) So people can laugh and they can think about profound things or however you as the host of your dinner want to do it. But what a brilliant way to turn a question into a, into a, um, you know, just a a wonderful way to, to, to learn about other people in the room. Excellent. Excellent. I could get all sorts of sense. We want to talk about absolutely every one of them. Let's spend a couple of minutes um, talking about what I think is one of the hardest questions there, the empathetic questions, getting people to open up to trust you. So I know when we create trust between leaders and employees, magic happens for everybody. Yes. Yes. But it's easier said than done. So talk to us about how you create those kind of empathetic questions. I think empathetic questions are in some ways the most um, profound and they're the ones that I find the most reward from. Because when you do them well, as you say, you take a relationship to another level, but you also help someone realize something about themselves or grapple with where they're coming from. They can be hard, though. They can be really hard because um, when you st- empathy is standing in someone else's shoes. It's what, what psychologists will call perspective taking. It's not feeling what thinking of, you know, well, here's what he or she feels. It's actually trying to put yourself in that person's place. Um, my neighbor, pretty taciturn guy um, who is a wonderful man but doesn't open up very much um was going through a tough thing with his wife his wife was was um fighting cancer and it was pretty apparent that she was not doing very well at all and that things were not going in a good direction so i encountered him his name was al i encountered al at a party one time um block party and he was just kind of off by himself and i said al how you doing he said uh it's just tough and I said, how's your wife? And he said, oh, it's not good. Something very, very, you know, short and, and not very expressive. And I thought I could, I could just sense something here. And I said, well, Al, how's your head? And he just started talking about how lonely he was, about how hard this was, about how he didn't know where it was going. So a lot of it is sensing from that perspective taking, imagining that you were going through whether whatever it is and listening hard and 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 having the courage, I guess, because it was kind of hard for me to do that. You know, what if I pushed too hard or snooped or whatever and he was offended or hurt or whatever. But just I tried that third time. Um, so I think that a lot of it is first revolves around that notion of who, who am I talking to here and, and, and what, is it, what does the world look like right now through their eyes? Mm-hmm. And then thinking about how you connect with that. One of the things um, that you describe, I think, beautifully in the book is, you know, we often get the notion of empathy wrong and we often say put myself in the other person's shoes, but that means how would I be feeling, how would right. I feel? That's right. You describe it slightly differently. Tell us about that. It's how do you feel? How does that person feel? What are they seeing and hearing and thinking and smelling? I sat down when I was at CNN, one of the most remarkable experiences I had. 
uh, was I sat down with, with four mothers, all of them single moms who are on public assistance. It was during one of the times when we were having a welfare reform debate in this country. And I wanted to talk to four people who were actually, we talk about them a lot, but do we ever actually talk to them? Mm-hmm. And it was the most extraordinary thing. All four of them wanted to be working. All four of them wanted to be off public assistance. All four of them acknowledged that they had had substance abuse issues, which they were sorry about or ashamed of or still trying to overcome. All four of them had kids they actually cared about, or at least they said they cared about them. One one woman had six children, two of whom had medical conditions. One of them had a heart issue. And she was very excited about going off for a job interview in the next few days, as I recall. And I said, well, what, what are you, where are you going? She was going to Children's Hospital here in Washington. And she was interviewing for a job as a dispatcher or something like that. And I said, well, do you know what you're going to be able to earn? You know, you, know what, you know what the pay is? And she said, no, it's probably minimum wage. And I thought, wait a minute. Six kids, two with health problems like this, minimum wage? How, what, what is that life going to be like to go off and do a job and come home to six kids and medical issues and you're a single mom and I don't know where you're living, but that can't be good, you know? I mean, what pressure, what, well, how do you get out of that? Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. you know, made me really think about what that life would be like and the accident of birth that we're all blessed with, or so many of us anyway, who are in a position to be talking like you and I are now. Yeah. Um, so that kind of experience, I think, is, is, is profound and important if you're going to create that, that sense and, 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 and not just sympathize, but empathize. Okay. Yeah, I really like that phrase that you're trying to understand how that person feels and what they hear and what they see and what they smell and what's in their head. Not how you would be feeling if you were in that situation. It's really profound. But it but it also, it's hard to do because you're suspending, I always say you're suspending yourself in those moments. A little bit. Yeah. How about that? You know, and, I, and that's, 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 it's hard to do, but it's a pretty good exercise. I mean, it's really challenging. But, yeah. but, and that's, and you can, that's where you ask yourself, you know, <laughs> what, what am I seeing? If I were this person, where would I, where, what would home look like? If I were this right. person, how am I getting back and forth? If I were this person and I wanted to break this cycle or do something different, what would be the first thing I would do? Who around me would help me? Um, and you start thinking about it that way and you, you see life differently. Yeah. Yeah. And we're right back to where we started, which is this whole power of listening. That ability to, um, you said the exercise you gave your students where they were not permitted to use the word I or me for 20 minutes in interviewing somebody. That's sort of part of the skill we're talking about here. All right, Frank, we're going to take a break. Um, With me today is Frank Sesno. The book that I am so intrigued by with Frank is called Ask More. Frank is currently director of George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs, but he is an internationally recognized journalist with 30 years experience, largely at CNN, as White House correspondent and Washington bureau chief, having interviewed five presidents, lots of Nobel Prize winners, renowned economists, celebrities, and on and on and on. And we're talking about how do you ask the questions that get you insight, engagement, and motivation creativity, all the good things. We're going to talk, when we come back, we'll talk about some other kinds of questions that Frank has mentioned. Be right back. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Frank Sesno. Frank is currently director of George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs. He is an internationally recognized journalist with more than 30 years experience working for CNN and interviewing all sorts of fabulous and wonderful people. Um, And through that has mastered, I should say, the art of asking questions. And as I've said before, the reason I'm doing this interview on asking questions is because fundamentally, I believe leading is about asking the right questions in the right place to inspire, to build trust, to connect and get rapport, to do inspiration, to do innovation, and so on. So we've just been talking about the range of questions um, that Frank likes to ask, and we were talking specifically about empathetic questions and this notion that these are the questions that move you can be rewarding and very difficult, and they often take the relationship to the next level. And they involve tuning into what the person is saying and how that person is seeing their world at that moment, and then asking the question with courage. So I wanna talk now to a different kind of question, Frank, strategic questions. So what are those scenarios where you wanna ask strategic questions? What do strategic questions even look like? And how do you go about doing it? So strategic questions, what I mean by strategic questions, are questions that really um, look at the longer term. It's not about something that's happening right now or a, 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 a detail or a piece of data that you're trying to collect to address um, an issue or a decision of the moment. It's, it's uh, you're looking well and truly over the horizon. Uh, let's say that you are thinking about starting a new business. And that's, business, that's going to involve a substantial financial commitment on your part. It's going to involve leaving a full-time job with a regular paycheck. It's going to involve uh, building a team, and that's going to take some time. Uh, you're not assured of success. Uh, you have to make a decision based on some good intellect. You know, what is the marketplace look like, how much money is being spent on a particular item or what have you. But there's also a big element of 
gut in there? Does it feel right? Does the timing feel right? Fundamentally, there's a lot of risk. If you get it right, that's going to be great. But if you get it wrong, you're now out of work for two years and you spent your money on a business that didn't fly and on and on it goes. So these are questions that prompt you to really ask yourself, what am I not thinking about here? What is the upside to this, but also what is the downside to this? Who might want to um, block me or stop me? What are the impediments that I could imagine that I'm not thinking about? As I mentioned earlier, I, I spoke with Colin Powell about this, former general, because there's nothing more strategic and nothing higher stakes than um, deciding whether you're going to take the country to war or not. And when he was working for the first George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, he literally, Colin Powell, literally walked into the Oval Office with eight questions and said, Mr. President, only if we can say yes to all eight of these do I think that a ground war is warranted. And among those questions were, have we thought of all alternatives? Do we have the American people on our side and do we know that? Um, do we have the international community on our side? Uh, what is our definition of success so we're not mired there? And can we answer that? And the answer in all cases was yes, because they had really done their homework. In the second Gulf War, Colin Powell was working for George W. Bush. And those questions were not asked. The environment was not conducive to that. I'm not saying that's the only reason why the second Gulf War didn't go well. But in the first Gulf War, after all those questions were asked, the ground campaign was lost was launched, rather, and in 100 hours, Saddam Hussein was pushed out of Kuwait. Mission accomplished. 100 hours. We're still in Iraq. And Colin Powell said, you know, I was there too. I am the guy who, you know, is kind of left holding the bag on this one, the Secretary of State. So I think that what, what, when I think about and talk about strategic questions, I am referring to a deliberate effort to capture as literally as a series of questions to yourself and to others in the room or beyond, what's over that horizon? What are we not thinking about? What could trip us up here? These are the big questions that CEOs should be thinking about on an ongoing basis. So, you know, the we always talk about in business, you do a SWOT analysis, you yep. know, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. But this is going a bit beyond that. It's a bit of imagining what is out there, and in particular, what haven't we considered that's out there. Well, what it really is, in some ways, is taking the SWOT analysis and, and, and turning it into a series of questions that you ask yourself and others okay. to get to those uh, those opportunities and threats, right? Okay. You have to you know, assess the landscape. But by putting it as a question rather than as a statement, so I, I, when I was at CNN, we had a terrible situation one time um, with a story that blew up in our faces. And the producers who, who presented it out there said, this thing is baked. It's just, we, this, we got this thing nailed. And a couple people tried to raise some questions about it because they were uncomfortable with it. And they were shot down. Um, for anybody who, is, who wrote a thesis when they were in college, they have this thing called a thesis defense. Yeah. Anybody who knows the you know, academics and peer review knows that you know, they are questioned at every turn. That mindset, have at it, right? To, mm -hmm. to force you to defend the situation, in this particular case when you're looking over the horizon, is very, very, very important. 
you're a college or university. You're thinking of building a $250 million science center. All right. What's the return on investment going to be on that? What what should your priorities be? Do you build the science center before you build the sports facility or the library? Or how do you decide that? You're a business. You're about. You want to buy another company or merge. What are the upsides and the downsides? Anybody who goes through that knows that that should be a process, a thorough, thorough vetting process, and not just looking at the next quarter, right? But what does this right. look like one, five, ten years from now? Right. And that is how I think, you know, we really have to. And as I said, what I loved about Powell, Powell has this thing called the commander's rule, by the way. Mm-hmm. He would com- he would summon his commanders when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs and sit around with them. And, and, and once a week, he'd have them in for a question for a, sort of a Q&A session. And his commander's okay. rule was the commander does not speak more than 30 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. So in, 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 in that Q&A, he's listening to others and learning from them. Okay. I like that, too. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting one. And to see it set an environment where people do that kind of dialogue and debate with each other. What I like about how you frame this as strategic is, one, it's over the horizon. It's a bit, a bit longer term. And you take you turn it into questions so that you force people to think about it rather than as statements. I think there was a very profound thing you said. This is SWOT analysis turned into questions. So we explore. We ask. We question. We debate. Well, as I, as, I, and I, as I like to say, I think one of the most important things in strategic questioning is really defining success. Um, what does it look like? How do you know when you get there? How will you measure it? Um, how will it um, look to you and to your allies? What will it look like to the customers? How will it market? How will you describe it? Mm-hmm. You know, asking 100 questions about what success looks and sounds like is a big part, I think, of helping to set big missions. Right. Fabulous. I can highly recommend also, I love it, Colin Powell's eight questions that he asked in the Kuwait um, situation. Those would make fabulous questions turned inside for anybody who's looking for to ask better strategic questions. Let's go to a different set of questions, bridging questions. Um, You said earlier that these are the kind of questions you ask when it's a bit of a hostile environment and you're you know, somebody's reacting negatively. Maybe you want to build a tiny bit of rapport, put them at ease. So describe these and describe what they look like. These are, um, I almost entitled this chapter of terrorists and teenagers. <laughs> because, <laughs> uh, it's unfair to, uh, terribly unfair to, to, well, some might say it's unfair to terrorists, but I think not. I think it's unfair to, t- to teenagers. <laughs> but um, the, I wrote this chapter around a remarkable character by the name of Barry Spodak. Barry um, has an incredible career. He's a has a training in psychology and other things, but he cut his teeth being the group therapist of John Hinckley, the man who shot Ronald Reagan. Okay. Uh, Barry was a young graduate student. He was working up at St. Elizabeth's Hospital right after Hinckley was sent there after the uh, after after shooting Reagan, and um, he wouldn't violate any of his medical confidentiality, but he, 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 he explained to me how he tried to draw Hinckley and others out. And he has what I call a question without a question mark that he uses. Um, and these, are, these questions without question marks are meant to be very non-threatening. And they are meant to acknowledge someone who may be very angry or distant or hostile or threatening. Uh, and he gives me an example. Well, actually, he, he, Barry went on and today 
trains, Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, and um, uh, the FBI on how to question the people who have indicated that they would that they might shoot the president or be a mass murderer, because you've got to dis- you've got to figure out is this just somebody who's um, angry or mentally mm-hmm. ill, or are they a real threat? So, Wanda, you, you, you've written this letter saying that you think the, the president is the Antichrist and doesn't deserve to be on the planet. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that way. Tell me about that. Mm. So I'm not going to say, Wanda, are you going to kill the president? <laughs> right. 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 But what Barry does is he, he will often pose the questions without question marks. Um, to draw someone out. He has what he calls micro-affirmations as someone is speaking. Um, And that's to make them feel more comfortable and also really visibly convey that he's listening. It might be a nod of a head or the wag of an eyebrow or, huh, interesting. Uh, And these micro-affirmations are meant to help someone feel that they have value. Mm-hmm. even though they may be way, way, way outside the mainstream. Because, again, you're just trying to get this person to speak. Right. Sometimes you have to do that with your kids. I've had teenagers. I've been there. I know what that's like. I just want to get them to speak. <laughs> and, ask, and, and posing questions without, right? If I question them as a parent, I'm, a, I'm instantly putting them on the defensive. Right. But if I can craft a question without a question mark, it's more uh, fill-in-the-blank than it is a tell me what you're doing. So the magic in this one is that there's a validate uh, uh, a valuing of the individual. Respect yes. is the wrong way, there's but I'm acknowledging a, there's, a, there's a bit of a validation. There's an acknowledgement, yes. There's a, a certain acknowledgement, and there is a there's also great patience. These these bridge building questions are like any building. You're going to go one brick at a time, and you may only get someone to talk about one very narrow thing. This could require, you know, a serious time commitment. When you think about a very um, a very isolated uh, character at work, think about a relative who just doesn't open up. Think about a friend who um, isn't a friend anymore because you've, you know, you've sort of gone your separate ways or, or worse. This isn't going to be something that's going to be done in five or 10 or 30 minutes. Um, it's going to be something that is going to happen over time. And, and, and one of these elements of these bridge building questions is there, there are brick at a time kinds of things meant very deliberately, again, outcome driven, to build rapport so someone will open up and tell you what they really think or what they really want to do what they really want to do and it strikes me in these kind of questions the fill in the blank you said that it leaves lots of possibilities for interpreting so the person can take it where they want it to go really important these we we call these open-ended questions how you doing today how you feeling what are you thinking about how's work uh, if you if you think about when you go to a doctor, oftentimes doctors and doctors are trained in this. Uh, so are therapists. So are many other people. Um, they'll start with uh, how you doing. For your audience who remembers Larry King, when Larry King was on CNN, I sat in for Larry King many times. I enjoyed doing the show very much. But Larry was was brilliant at this. But he would drive the reporters, the rest of us, crazy when he would interview 
a president or a senator or something like that, because he'd say, Mr. President, why you, why do you want this bill? It's like, oh, come on, that's just so imprecise and whatever. But what Larry did, and the reason people wanted to go on Larry King and they opened up to Larry King, is he asked these open-ended questions that, A, were non-threatening. We talked about that before. So they helped build that rapport, that sense of trust. And, B, they allowed the interviewee to sort of set the agenda, at least to start with. And that is what your doctor will do. Oh, you're a therapist. Well, how are you doing today? How's the week gone? Before you start going to very specific things. So that, that, that rapport building and those big open, open-ended questions are, are, are very important. And I now have to apologize to Larry. I was very funny when I, when I sat in for Larry one time, I, I, I called downstairs because I had an author that I was interviewing. And I called down to his producer. I said, have you got the author's book? And there was a silence on the phone. And she said, well, what do you want the book for? And I said, well, to read it? Larry <laughs> never read the books of the authors he interviewed. And he's talked about this very publicly. Because Larry's approach was, I want to ask the questions that a person on the street who hasn't read the book would ask. If I've read the book, I'm going to go to page 232 and say, here on page 232, you say, and I quote, and what the yeah. person on the street wants to know is, why'd you write the book? Yeah. What'd you right. learn? <laughs> and so while we ridiculed those kinds of questions, they have a very important place in dialogue and discussion and inquiry. It strikes me in the work environment that these kind of questions are absolutely critical when we've got tension in a relationship either because we're trying to do something that's very tricky or because we have very different styles and it hasn't gone very well or, you know, rapport is just broken down, that those kind of questions could be um, opened up dialogue in a substantive way. It's so, so important. You're so right. It's absolutely so important. So you can have a staff meeting and somebody has looked like they're kind of, you know, folding their arms, their knitted brow, and they're all upset about something, and you can go to somebody and you can confront them. Well, that wasn't very, you know, you, you certainly didn't look like you were at today's meeting. Or you can say, you know, how you doing? Um, how do you think things are going here for you? Uh, I saw you at today's meeting, and you, you, you know, you seem kind of tense. Um, what's going on? And inviting someone to open up, explain, doesn't work all the time. You know, you're not going to, as, a, as a, you know, people aren't going to drop to one knee and tell you exactly and everything that's on their minds when you, you know, simply ask them once. But um, I have found and research has found that that is a much more productive way to engage someone than to confront them. Um, you know, there's time for that, too, and places for that. But but it really does make a big difference. I think it's one reason, too, that in some cases, um high-powered, hard-charging bosses uh, who don't take the time to do that, who think they know everything and don't ask, find that their employees, after a fairly short period of time, aren't very motivated and aren't, very, and aren't going to be very brave in, in raising an issue or disagreeing or taking a risk. All right, so you've just given me an insight, and I thought I was pretty good on this stuff. Um, I, as I work with line managers, one of the big questions they always ask me is, how do I motivate people? And any hand I can get. And what you've just said to me is, ask more open-ended bridging questions. What are you thinking? What's going on? Because that's where you get a sense of what's really on somebody's mind. All right. 
I want to turn to one last set of questions before we run completely out of time. And that is, you know, the hot word at the moment is purpose. Everybody wants to know how to have a better sense of purpose. How do we have purpose-driven organization, et cetera? And you have a whole section on purpose questions. Tell us about those. I call them mission questions. And these are these are the kinds of questions that, that help you set a mission. You're a CEO and you're trying to take the place in a new direction. You're running an NGO and you're trying to raise money to, to build a wing, uh, you know, the cancer wing on, on, on the hospital. Uh, you're uh, an elected leader and you're trying to convey your sense of mission and you want, you know, you want to be a leader, which means that you want people to want to follow you. Um, the person I interviewed for this chapter is a, is a philanthropist and someone who helps ca- coach people who are fundraisers. Well, if I come to you and I say, can you write me a check for $100, maybe you'll write me a check, but probably you'll send me on my way. If I come to you and we, you and I discover that we have a shared purpose together, that we both care about homeless kids, and we think that this is one of the worst things that we've seen, and gosh, if we could just do one thing in our lifetimes, it would be to you know find some of these kids a wonderful home, and we actually discover that we share that, and we can do something about it. Um, we're probably both likely to write a check, uh, and that certainly is this person's experience. So I think those mission questions are so important. And uh, you know, like, again, I keep talking about characters because I'm a storyteller, so I look for characters. And my character in this chapter, one of them anyway, is a guy by the name of Rick Leach. And Rick has become a really good friend. Rick is the president of World Food Program U.S. That's one of the part of the World Food Program, which is the largest humanitarian relief organization agency in the world. And they have the unenviable task of trying to get food to millions and millions and millions of people who are hungry because of drought or war or political instability or what have you. And this guy is the most optimistic person I've ever met. It's just extraordinary. And I don't know how he does it because it's not exactly a a cheery subject to go to work to deal with every day. But he's got this whole thing about um, hunger is a solvable problem and the people that he works with um, want to change the world. And he has four questions that he poses to people, uh, corporations, and individuals, when he's trying to enlist them. One, what's the problem? How do we define it? What are strategies to solve it? What's our goal here? And the one that he says is the most important, what role can you play, can we play in achieving that goal? And if you can ask someone what role they want to play and get them to articulate it, as they say, people remember what they say more than what they hear, they've signed on. At least that's what he tells me, and that's why he's mm-hmm. so optimistic. I see so that. I think I, I that. think that sense of purpose, that sense of shared purpose that you can get through asking someone, really, what 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 do you what would you most like to change about this? What what do you you know what what, what gives you joy um, when you write a you know when you write a check or when you contribute your time or volunteer? Right. That sense of mission is is it's a brilliant thing. That's. Um, it's you did this in terms of a philanthropy and in terms of giving check, but it strikes me that it works just as well in a corporate environment with a leader, totally. where you want to say we have this problem with you know client or with I don't know sales strategy or with any topic business topic. How do we define that problem, and what are the options for approaching it, and what could we achieve, and then how do you want to help? What part do you want to play? So that people get to define that in the way they get excited about. I think it would work all day long. I grew up in, I started in radio. And one of my closest friends at the first radio station I worked with was, was the, one of the most successful salesmen that had ever been at this particular station. And he didn't go and try to sell people. 
he went and he would talk to the you know the store owner or the business owner or whoever was going to potentially advertise and he said who are you trying to get to what 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 do you think your most interesting product is what do people least understand about you if you could if you could put a message out there what would you tell people and he gets them talking about their business and who they want to reach and what how what 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 a cool product they've got and he said oh my god what if we what what if we captured that in an ad so through this series of questions <laughs> that drew this person out to identify their own objectives, he made a sale. Actually, Brilliant. he made a lot of sales. We, we really hated him because he made far more money than any of the rest of us. So, you know, that's life. <laughs> I, think I it's have the questions essence. for a flat fee. See, he gets the commission. <laughs> <laughs> Got to change your strategy there. To redefine <laughs> success. The to work, I guess. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. I think all great salespeople are really good at that one. Um, we've got literally one and a half minutes. Tell us about vision questions. About vision questions? Uh, well, vision is, you know, where do you want to go? What are, what is your aspiration? Uh, and how are we going to get there? Uh, how does it lift all boats? How do we share that and excite, excite us? Uh, that, you know, to me, this is, you know, how do we, how do we get to the moon? Um, and the, this is, these are the, these sort of creativity questions. Um, if you, you're a college president and you're coming in and you want to lift the ranks, you're a business leader and you're coming in and you want to turn the balance sheet around, what's your vision for this place? And you can tell people and you should do some of that, but then as you connect with them and, and draw them out as what is their shared vision along the way, um, you, you, you invest that vision, I think, in, in, in others. And um, there's a certain buy-in that comes there. A very quick story. I was talking to a Hollywood showrunner. Uh, he was directing a scene. Uh, it was a cop. Uh, he had sunglasses on. He had a suspect he was looking at. The light was bright. They couldn't, there was a moment when he was supposed to take his sunglasses off, and he couldn't get the scene right, couldn't get the scene right. Cut, 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 Ed says, and he's the name of the director. And he goes over to the actor and he says, look, when you take those sunglasses off, it's the first time we're going to see you make eye contact with this person. That's the human dimension we get for the first time. When do you think you should take your sunglasses off? Ed said to me, Art, uh, artists or, or actors, rather, all think they're artists and they don't want to be considered puppets on a string. Well, no one wants Great. to be considered a puppet on a string. Ask someone what they would do and you convey a sense of both trust and mission and vision. And then they have some authorship. Great. I love it. Frank, we could keep going, but sadly, we are out of time. So thank you for being a guest today. Well, thank you. And thank you for all your great questions. I really, really appreciate it. And I wish you huge luck and huge audiences going forward. All right. Fabulous. My guest today, Frank Sesno, um, as you've heard, has been a reporter for several for 30 years with CNN and is currently the director of George Washington University School of Media and Public Affairs. The book that I like so much is called Ask More, if you would like to read it. Frank, I think the thing that it's hard to pull out a highlight of this one, but it's just the careful thoughtfulness of what's the reason I'm asking this question. What am I trying to get to this with this question? Whether it's bridging to break through hostility, whether it's strategic to make sure we've seen what we need to see, or whether it's empathy to understand what's really happening for that person, or it's creativity and vision that we're trying to achieve. So thank you. It was fabulous. And I join really, us really next week. Your time. Thank you. Join us next week for another episode. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.